You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You can open your Bibles to Exodus 25. We're going to take a little look at the tabernacle this morning. So if you could throw that picture up there, guys. I'm going to be referring to this some. You always need a little bit of visual image of the tabernacle. Helps. We're not going to read through the whole thing. Don't get scared. Uh, but I, I will say this uh, as, by way of intro. Um, the tabernacle might seem sometimes boring to us, but it's obviously not to God. He gives us 12 chapters on this tent, you know, like 32 to 34 or whatever, kind of an interlude. But if you include them, 15 there. And we have two chapters on the creation of the world, two chapters on the new heavens and earth, 12 on this tent with a whole lot of detail there thrown in. So it's not a divine hymn. And this structure is specifically a pattern of divine things. Seven times in the word of God, we're told the tabernacle was made after a heavenly plan. You can look at those. Uh, It was an earthly building representative of heavenly realities. We're told in Hebrews 10.1 that it was a shadow of good things to come. We're told it was a tent of testimony in Numbers 9.15 and a tabernacle of witness in Acts 7.44. So it foreshadowed, testified, and witnessed of specific divine things. It was a literal building made out of materials with a representative divine purpose. Uh, So we want to see what God is obviously trying to speak to us through this. There's a lot of things. Obviously, I'm not going to cover all of them. And a lot of them are seen in typology, uh, just to be honest, which some people, because it has been abused at times, kind of ignore. But it's important. Hebrews, uh, when, not Paul, the writer to Hebrews, was, (laughs) Paul, was (laughs) speaking to the people there. Uh, He starts to talk to them about Melchizedek and says, I have a ton of things to say about Melchizedek, which you're slow to hear. And you're not ready because you still need milk when you should be ready for the meat of Scripture. And what he tells them is those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil would get this. And the point is, with typology, yes. You, you have to have the milk of the word down, and it's part of the meat of the word. But our senses should be covered enough in the Bible to recognize what's good and evil there. Uh, we should know when somebody's pulling out typology, and it's weird stuff. It doesn't create doctrine. It doesn't make new doctrine. It simply highlights the things that are already there in the Bible. So everybody here should be able to sit here, and, and sometimes I think it's just easy to like blow these things off because you know the Bible doesn't directly say those things. Well, Paul had some really powerful points about Melchizedek that they needed to hear uh, that are still very powerful. And the Bible is layer upon layer of divine things and insight. So 
you know, people will give their whole lives to study the Roman catacombs and the structures there, or the Egyptian pyramids, or literally give their lives to scholarly or dubious findings in terms of authorships of books or dates of things. But in the tabernacle, we have a literal divinely inspired structure to study and to look at and to pull things from. So I simply say that by intro to say, like, there's really important things here in the simplest terms. And God wants us to learn from them and see them. And a lot of it is in relation to our meeting of him. So in Exodus 25, we're going to look, we'll begin in verse 1. <coughs> says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. They might bring me an offering. For everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. This is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold and silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. And here, this is a theme right off the bat. Here's what he wants them to know. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And let's skip to Exodus <coughs> down a little bit, 29. I'm going to kind of bookend some of the construction here for you. Exodus 29:42. At the end of a lot of this, he would say, This shall be a continual burnt offering. Throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, notice where I will meet with you, to speak with you, and there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. Uh, and you could go on there, and again, he reiterates that he's the God who led them out of Egypt and who will dwell with them. But the point is... <coughs> Looking at the tabernacle, one of the main things you and I will learn things about is God's desire to meet with us. That was the point. It's a sanctuary where I will meet, the tabernacle of meeting. He pictures it over and over again so that I can dwell among you. And obviously in our worship, that is what we're aiming for, meeting with him and giving him the glory that he deserves. That is still God's desire. He still wants to meet with us. Jesus would pray in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. They may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. And his final intention summed up in Revelation 21 in the new heavens and new earth is, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So it was important. God knew what he wanted to do in human history, <clears throat> that they make this tabernacle according to his divine pattern and structure so that they could then fulfill God's purpose, which was meeting together. So what I want to do is take a little look here. If you go back to 25, Exodus 25, I'm going to use this little laser pointer because it's cool. I'm going to make simply two points of things that we see in the tabernacle that relate to our meeting and our worship of him. 
first is this. If you look at the headings in your Bible, which are not divinely inspired but helpful, that last I shared this before, and Dave Miller pointed out to me that you made it seem like the headings are divinely inspired. So I'm throwing that out in case I'm confusing anybody that the headings are divinely inspired. They're not. They're just helpful. So we see as God begins to d- design the structure, right, you will see the first heading says the Ark of the Testimony. Then it will say the table of showbread. So, you know, it begins here. Then he goes to the table. He begins to describe the things in there. If you go through the list, it's the golden lampstand. It's the curtains and the veils. It's the altar of brass as we're moving through the chapters here. It's the outer court. It's the priestly garments. Then the priestly cleansing with the blood placed on the furniture, the ear, the thumb, the toe. And finally, those daily offerings, right? Obviously, you get all the way out here to this bronze altar and the things that are out there that were constantly given. So we find, just as we look at this, right? And I I don't think this point is too little, that when God talks about us meeting together and worshiping, he begins here in the Holy of Holies and works his way out to where the worshiper would come in. He does not begin with the worshiper working in to him. God begins with meeting with him from his perspective. And the simple point is, the tabernacle was to be seen from the view of God and not the view of the worshiper. And any time we come to him and we want to acceptably meet with him, we have to begin with him, his point of view. Acceptable worship Praise to God, it can't be done in our own way. We don't decide how to come to him, what type of worship is acceptable to him. We agree to meet on his terms. Sometimes we talk about these things as if we're doing God a favor by coming to him or giving money to the church or showing up at the church or serving him. He doesn't need any favors. He's God. And that's why there is a tension between God and who he is, right? Beginning in the Holy of Holies where his presence was, who he is, what what he's doing there, and our coming to him and our worship. And I'll say even in a lot of senses, this isn't just with worship leaders, it's with other people, the idolatry of artistry where our artistry somehow then overtakes who God is in his person and who he is in, we'll say, theology. Now, human theology can be right or wrong, but the point is there is a true God, and he is something specific. And Tozer says idolatry is also worshiping God as something he is not. That's idolatry. We can't worship him as something he is not. We have to begin with what he is and who he is and his perspective. We can't make a golden calf and call it Jehovah. They tried it. Didn't work. Right? They were supposed to begin with him and who he was and work from there. And I think for us, you know, there's obviously there's only a tension between our expression and who God is because our feelings and our creative ability and all those things are affected by sin. Right? So our desires, our emotions, our thoughts, they've all been corrupted by sin. And the Holy Spirit can work in our lives and really draw us back to him. There is certainly guys who literally worked on this, but I don't think they felt constricted by the reality of who God was or 
what he set up as his divine pattern to approach him. Bezalel, Oholiab, or however you say that guy's name. It's not a test, so don't be worried. And the other wise-hearted men that God gave them to work these things out. I don't think they were saying, God, you know, I want to make these curtains a little bit different. You know, your idea here is a little messed up, and I want different colors, or these aren't the colors of the season, or something along those lines. So, you know, I do think there's a real practical way. When we come to worship or to help, do we begin with ourselves? Do we begin with the wrong way there? What we want to play, what words we like, how we like to sing, or even the people, what do they like to sing? What's the experience the people are having? What people think of us? And this is how a lot of the conversation goes and the discussion goes. It's a, it's a lot of covering what's sinful or not sinful, and as long as it's in the not sinful category, then we should still be able to do it. But the point is, that's not the only discussion. The, uh, the other discussion is what's self-centered and what's God-centered. And we have to begin with what God is. We don't have the freedom to worship God in a self-centered way. He is where everything starts. And what happens is then we know there are, there are churches that try to fill up the loss of God consciousness with self-consciousness. And they do that in a whole lot of different ways. Uh, and it's an evidence that he's not meeting with them. So they need all these other things to try to make it seem like something happened, which was what the real goal was, God meeting with us. And if he really does, a lot of that extra stuff would, would seem ridiculous if we recognize his presence was there in the way it was supposed to be. So I think for us, we always have to begin with God. We have to begin with what he wants we have to begin with what he thinks. We have to begin with what worship experience he's walking away with, as opposed to just ours, spirit and truth. We need to get ourselves out of the way. That's not always easy, but he will help us. In 31, in this section, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and all matter of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and in silver and in bronze and cutting withels for setting, in carving wood and in all manner of workmanship. And indeed I have appointed with him Ahalohim, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan. I put wisdom in the hearts of all gifted artisans, and they may make all that I have commanded you. And the point is, God will give us his spirit to help us with the artistry he wants to fill his standard. Right? He'll give us the people we need to do that. He'll give us the right heart that we need to do that. And then when things are done in his way, he can fill it with his own glory and his own presence. So we have to begin with him. We have to start with him. We have to think of him. Um, in practical encouragement, I would just say, particularly for worship leaders, I, this, I think this is, you know, a lot of these things you could trace out for every Christian. But I think particularly for worship leaders, like you should be thinking of God and placing God in front of you all the time. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple books because, like I said, I read. Hopefully you do, too. If you want some help putting God in front of your eyes, you should read The Knowledge of the Holy or Delighting in God by A.W. Tozer. Both those books are very accessible. The Attributes of God by Pink. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. 
or if you want to buy this book and just hold on to it for the rest of your life and read little snippets because it's huge. Uh, basically, everybody who writes on God references the existence and attributes of God by Stephen Charnoff. Uh, really big book. Like you could just take little parts of it, and it could be like a life, a life endeavor book. You know, maybe by the time I'll die, I'll read this. But uh, it's it's incredible. And in all these things, you'll you'll have God in front of your mind. A.W. Tozer would say this. The things that I have discovered is simply this. The more I experience God, the more my capacity to experience God grows. Each day as I walk with God and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to me who God really is, the more my capacity grows in worshiping and adoring this God. What this means is that my worship grows and grows as my perception of God grows. God cannot grow. My perception of God grows as I experience him day after day. I should be more capable of worshiping God today than I was 10 or 20 years ago. As I move towards God, my capacity to understand God grows deeper and deeper. Of course, the opposite is also true. As I move away from God, my capacity begins to shrink. How many Christians are experiencing a shrinking capacity to worship God? Perhaps that's the reason why our music today is so superficial. Uh, in an interesting way, A.W. Tozer, he wrote a ton of articles that other people gathered together and put into books. That's why he has like a million books out. But he didn't actually write them all as a book. I think he only wrote nine or ten books himself. Um, and one of the earliest things that he wrote was The Pursuit of God. One of the last things he wrote was The Knowledge of the Holy. And he died writing a book on worship. How fitting, right? the pursuit of God, the knowledge of the holy, and the expression of that is worship. We begin with him. He, in his structure, begins with himself, his point of view, not our approach to him. We have to start with God in our coming to worship. The second thing that I think is important there is, obviously we see some things very clearly, but as he goes through here, you will notice he actually skips the altar of incense, he'll go through. He skips the labor where they're cleansing themselves. There's missing things in the description. The ransom money is actually missing. The holy anointing oil and incense is also missing that the priest would wear that only the priest could wear. There's a number of things missing. And as you look at that, you wonder, now why, right? If it's going from God's point of view to our point of view, how come God misses this, this altar of incense, prayer and worship? If, if there's one thing that symbolizes our worship, this seems to be the most important one. Does God not see that? Is he just forgetting those things? And to me, the answer is no. Obviously, it's very simple. Acceptable worship and praise comes after all of the rest. This cannot be what's first. When the worshiper came in, this is what's first. The sacrifice, the lamb, the blood that was shed, the blood that would be on the priests and the instruments. They were withheld because we first have to acknowledge and apply the blood as we approach him in our worship to him. And that, that blood that's applied is what makes the rest of our worship 
acceptable. No worship, no prayer, no sacrifice, no service can be truly acceptable or sanctified in his sight without those other things coming first. Without the blood of Christ. From the view of, again, the one who we begin with. Now, that's why... Some people have a hard time beginning to understand, like, well, how can my worship not be acceptable? Because, again, what type of worship experience is God looking for? Is God looking for really talented, unsaved musicians who have no covering in the blood, ripping it on the guitar? Is that what God is looking for in our approaching him? Is God looking for even us coming to him with no application of the blood in our lives? Ignoring bitterness or lust or sin or things that are there? Is that the type of worship that God is looking for? Our God, not any other God. Jehovah God, the God who sits above the mercy seat. That's, that's who he is. And again, we, we don't define who he is. He reveals himself to us. Somebody said the summary of the Old Testament is, I am the Lord your God. And you and I, If we're going to approach him, he, in his own description of those things, makes it obvious that our approach to him without the acknowledgement of the blood of the lamb and the acceptance of that in our own lives and the need for that in our own lives is, is so important that literally without it, it would be as bad as us being an Israelite just showing up not offering the sacrifice and trying to enter into the Holy of Holies. That's that's how unacceptable it would be. Because those things have to be recognized. And and the point is, for us, I think, for that, that prayer and praise and coming to him, he he offers that to us. He he wants us to step in there. We know in the New Testament that that's there for us. David would understand those things. He would say, let my prayer be set forth before you as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. He would say, the writer to Hebrews again would say, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And the point is, again, the things, the whole description, what God tells us and even what he leaves out and comes back to later, all have their purpose. And this altar, this incense where that praise was constantly lifted that sat right in front of the Holy of Holies, we, the people, couldn't just enter in there. We know that. Only the high priest could. But that incense would, in essence, cross over through the veil, right? And it could be where Jehovah was, the King of kings and Lord of lords, seated on the mercy seat. And you and I now, because of the blood of the Lamb, have the freedom, he says, to boldly enter through that veil. We've been provided something that we should want to and literally and willingly take up as we approach him. Literally in a practical sense, we should come and say, you know what, Lord, I'm about to 
put this guitar on or I'm stepping up the steps to this stage or I'm right behind the mic and we just say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be The word there is propitiatus. Be propitiatus to me, a sinner. Covering. Be mercy seat for me. Be Cover me again in your blood. And that should be genuine. And when we do that, we can boldly enter in. We can recognize that God has made that approach available to us. And you and I, it says, again, in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way to the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. They, they didn't get this whole thing quite yet. But you and I now, we can have that approach into the holiest. And we should have an even greater appreciation for our approach to him and for the blood of the lamb and what that means in our lives. And then our willingness to be able to come and to worship the one who was holy, who was behind a veil at one point, who was unapproachable in that sense, in a human sense. And then the rest of our lives should be able to carry that fragrance of Christ, right? The priest will put the blood, again, on their ear, on their thumb, and on their toe. And they would wash themselves in the labor. And, and then they could have the anointing oil. Then they could walk around no matter where they went with that scent that would be picked up. Uh, F.W. Borum tells a story about one of his friends <coughs> who lived in a little English town. And he was walking through the town and he said at one point he just caught this like wonderful smell. And he was looking around. Where is that? He thought he might have walked by a garden or there was something. And he couldn't figure out what it was. And he finally grabbed somebody and said, hey, like, what, where, what am I smelling right now? Where did that kind of come from? And he said, the guy said, oh, did you hear that loud horn just a little while ago? And he said, yeah. He said, that was lunch for the factory workers that work in the perfume factory over there. And he said, then they all wander out through the town, and everywhere they, wa- they go, they all kind of carry this scent, and it just kind of permeates the town, right? And the picture is, Ephesians, we're supposed to walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, and offering in a sacrifice to God a sweet-smelling aroma, right? We're, we're covered in that sacrifice now so that we can move through our lives. Obviously, when we come to lead in praise singing, But anywhere, that blood allows us to approach him and to be that sweet-smelling savor constantly, no matter where we go, no matter what we're doing. But but the blood has to be acknowledged. If it's not, something's wrong. The approach is wrong. Christ can't accept that. There's There's an issue. If we do, then, as Hebrews said, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But don't forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. The emphasis should never be on how hard it is for us, how difficult it is for us, and our approach to him in our worship in our prayer that would go between that veil, this world, and the next to the Lord, the emphasis is never on the difficulty for us. We only get there because a lamb was slain. It was hard for Jesus to die on the cross. It's not hard for me to sing praise songs. It was hard for Jesus to suffer for the sins of the world. It's not hard for me to pray. It's hard for me to pray because my heart is shallow and slow. 
and my body's lazy. That's why it's hard for me to pray. It's not actually hard for me to pray. It's really easy for me to pray. The approach is really easy now, really simple. But the lamb that was slain needs to be acknowledged first. I, I come recognizing who I'm coming to. I begin with God. And in my approach to him, my first step is not to just hit the prayer and the praise. It's to acknowledge the lamb slain, to reapply that blood in my own life, and then to make the approach to cleanse myself at the labor, to have acceptable worship, or to anoint myself with that incense that can be a wonderful smell and aroma to him, or to bring my praise through the veil into that God's presence. Otherwise, as Jesus says in Mark 7, they do worship me in vain. There is such thing as vain worship. Otherwise, they do worship me. I don't know, maybe maybe other gods accept that worship. But he said, this is who I am. And you begin with me and my approach. If you're going to worship me, and happy for us, if we acknowledge his process, he honors it. If you would, go to Exodus 40. We'll end with this. Exodus chapter 40. We kind of know what happens here. It says, we'll begin in 33, right at the end. It says, so Moses finished the work. And that whole section there describes he did what God asked him to do. He followed the divine pattern. He worked things out according to the way God wanted to. Then Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, right? I think that's what we're aiming for. But I also think it's important to note, right, we don't just begin with ourselves, we begin with him. That's what he's aiming for. That's what he wants. He wants us to truly meet with him. He wants us to truly see and experience his glory. He wants to fill our meeting with himself. And the whole process is designed for us to approach the God that loved us before the foundation of the world. And, and this is what he wants in the end. And to us, that should be a promise and, and something that's exciting. Uh, and that uh, our worship then obviously is not big as long as the music is big. Um, in his sight, a worship meaning is big as he is magnified and recognized, right? So if there's five people around where he's magnified and recognized, then that worship service to him is bigger than if there's 25,000 people that don't approach according to the blood or acknowledge who he truly is. So these things, again, important for us to learn, to see, you think I'm throwing out unbiblical typology, then you should exercise your senses to recognize good and evil. But I think in that, there's a check, obviously, on our hearts as we approach him. Lord, again, man, what songs do I want to play? 
I don't know. I'm not sure. I kind of like this song. Kind of like, what? What do you like? I know it's pretty safe to start with something that covers the blood, right? I know at least. I don't. I, I, if, if you know, we're led of the Holy Spirit. If you know, after a message or something specific, God puts it in your heart. You play that song or whatever. But it's always a lot safer to just say, Lord, what's pleasing to you? Who are you? What do you want? I, I know starting with the blood is never going to be a bad thing. Let me, let me approach you in the way that you've laid out here and you've designed and just keep checking ourselves and our self-consciousness and trying to stick God forward with God-consciousness. And I think we'll find him quite often in that arena. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for my brothers and my sisters here. Obviously, Lord, there's a lot of applications to these things and how they fit in, but... Uh, I do pray, Lord, that you would be revealing yourself to them in unique ways. I pray that you would allow us, Lord, to know you, to sense your presence. We want you to be manifested in our hearts, in our lives, certainly in our congregations, in our youth ministries, as we're ministering in a hospital room or on an outreach somewhere. Um, we want you, Lord, to be magnified, to be lifted up. And we want your glory to be recognized. So not unto us, O oh Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Mike Foch. If you enjoyed the message, you can access more of Pastor Mike's teaching ministry by visiting ccphilly.org.